Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Time Bandits, released November 6th, 1981. It was written by Michael Palin and Terry Gilliam, directed by Gilliam, and released by Handmade Films. Is that Gilliam's production company? No. Oh. It's the Monty Python's production company. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. Gilliam first planned a film told from the perspective of a child two years earlier in 1979, but he wanted to surround the lead with a team of adults who wouldn't crowd him out of the story and settled on the idea of rounding out the cast with little person actors. The same year, Gilliam began pre-production on a film called Brazil, and he was having such a problem communicating the concept to producer Dennis O'Brien that he put it on hold and returned to the child's perspective story. In the absence of interested studios, O'Brien planned on financing the production through his own handmade films, a joint venture with former Beatle George Harrison, who had previously financed Monty Python's Life of Brian. Harrison approved the pitch, and Gilliam got to work writing with fellow Python Michael Palin. Palin wrote the Robin Hood part for himself to play, but as production drew near, Palin and Gilliam agreed that John Cleese was a more bankable star and would for sure do them the favor of appearing. At the same time, they agreed not to involve any more Python peeps to avoid confusion with the official brand, a problem which had occurred before with Gilliam's Jabberwocky. People just assumed it was a Monty Python movie because mm. it had so many of them in it. Right. For the part of God, or the Supreme Being, Gilliam was set on Sir Ralph Richardson, since by Gilliam's estimation, he was as close to God as actors get. In keeping with the mission statement, most of the film is composed of low-angle shots in an effort to emphasize the perspective of the central child, Kevin. George Harrison was quite pleased with the film and insisted, as producer, that his original songs be used to score it, but predictably Gilliam pushed back because he's not famous for collaboration. In the end, only one of Harrison's songs wound up in the film, strictly as a courtesy, and Gilliam hates it. That, I assume, is the end credits? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I thought it did not fit the No, tone. it doesn't, because that's what happens when more than one person makes a movie, is that stuff doesn't fit perfectly well together. The lyrics of the song also happen to chronicle, in metaphor, Gilliam's difficult behavior during the film's production. During one of their many arguments, Harrison compared Gilliam's stubbornness to John Lennon's, and Gilliam took this as a great compliment. <laughs> I bet he did. <laughs> the film was a surprising success, and on a budget of $5 million, it brought in $42 million globally. It was followed the next year by an adaptation in Marvel Comics, and became the first film in what is known as Gilliam's Dreamer Trilogy, with 85's Brazil and 88's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which tell the stories of an adult man and an elderly man, respectively. In the mid-90s, Gilliam and Brazil Munchausen co-writer Charles Kuhn wrote a script for Time Bandits 2, which would sadly never come to be. The project was officially scrapped with the death of bandit Jack Purvis, since by then three of the six bandit actors had passed away. More recently, Apple has been producing a series adaptation with a pilot written and directed by Taika Waititi. It began production in October of last year in New Zealand. No word yet on a suspected release date. It stars Lisa Kudrow, Charlene Yee, Rachel House, and a kid named Cal L. Tuck. 
His name is Cal L. So Superman yeah. fan parents. But uh, I love Rachel House, and she's in like every type of thing. So yeah, and I like Charlene Yee. Yeah, she's great too. No offense, Lisa Kudrow, we like you too. I know you're listening. Thank you for being on Friends. <laughs> <laughs> you're not even gonna not even gonna put it out there that that Gilliam is already terribly unhappy with the series. Oh sure, yeah. He's uh, it, it, he was he was in, kind of left out of the creative. End. Yeah, in in the true nature of it all, they apparently didn't even tell him that they were gonna go with Taika Waititi, and then I guess he left set like yeah. almost immediately. Oh well, it doesn't really matter. It's I mean, I think I think Gilliam is kind of done making those movies anyway. Fun movies, I mean. Well, I mean, <laughs> he has his reputation, you know, for. Being difficult. Yes, being difficult and projects going extremely over budget. Yeah. And uh I, I don't think he could work with a major studio, so there was there was never gonna be a way that Time Bandits would come back unless it was by someone else and, and he wasn't without really his involved. blessing. Yeah, yeah. basically, mm-hmm. yeah. We start with a very Gilliam-esque map, blueprints to the universe, crowded with dotted lines and concentric circles. The map seems to move in three dimensions as the camera pushes through it and symbols float by. A laser grid dices up the frame into even squares, and one at a time, the squares fill with letters to spell out the film's title, Time Bandits, in time with notes from the score. Thank goodness it only does time individually. And then Bandits is and then all bandits one. Was one. It's been a little bit all a while, uh, but I was like, like going along with the music, it's like, dun, dun. I was like, oh boy, this is going to take a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I do the, like the, all the opening credits spell out this way. I do really like the font, though. That like the yeah. the, the aesthetic of, of yeah. the way it time looks very Vitruvian Man ish. Yeah, yeah. The lettered squares drop through the map into the vacuum of space, floating toward Earth and descending on a small suburban neighborhood. A married couple are watching a commercial for a kitchen outfitted with Moderna design appliances. The commercial promises to produce a dinner in 15 seconds, and the wife is unimpressed. Morrison's have got one that can do that in eight seconds. It reminds me of that Dane Cook bit about how everything will be instant in the future. Everything, just get into a teleporter. Bye. <laughs> what do I want for dinner? <laughs> but the DMV will still take like nine <laughs> seconds. Nine seconds, come on! I'm going to be at work in three seconds! <laughs> <laughs> On the counter behind the couple, their son Kevin reads a book about ancient Greek warfare. They were trained to kill people 26 different ways with their bare hands, Dad. An alarm goes off and Dad sends Kevin to bed while he tries to tell them about King Agamemnon. On television, the subpar kitchen is revealed to be a prize on a game show called Your Money or Your Life, an amusing twist on the popular mugger catchphrase that always sounded admittedly like a game show. (laughs) The host is being played by Jim Broadbent, Kevin reads one last page of the big book of Greek heroes before Dad shouts at him to shut the light off. It's weird to portray Agamemnon as a hero. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but he is in this movie. In his room, we can see a cutout of Napoleon, a big retro future robot toy, a figurine of a Greek soldier. He only closes his eyes for a couple of seconds before a knight on horseback bursts out of his wardrobe into the room. Like in The Long Riders last season, training this horse to jump through a solid object took several weeks. And because it's not a Gilliam film, if it doesn't needlessly endanger children, we even get a shot of the knight and horse jumping over the child's bed with Craig Warnock in the bed. 
the film's lead actor there in the bed under a horse. Hopefully they filmed that last, just in case. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was done totally practical. I mean, obviously, this, this is not. there's nothing practical about this, but they did it for real on set. Suddenly, the bed is outside in a forest at sunrise, and the horseman rides off into the distance. It lets out a bizarre shriek sound effect we've heard before on the show. Do you guys recall where we last heard this noise? I was racking my brain. Because, like, I know it from this, and I know it from Crawl. Yep. And I was like, oh, man, what was that other thing that we heard it in? Was it the Boogans? No. Hint. When we heard it last, Richard pointed out that it is reused in Krull. <laughs> That's is, the hint. Is it a British production? It is. Oh, so is yeah. it, um, what's that King Arthur one that you like? Excalibur? No. Um, what else shot over there? What else shot over Battle there? Battle Beyond the Stars? No. The Shinnin? It was from 1981, not 1980. Okay. Folks? No, that was 80. Even though it takes place in the UK... The lead actor is an American. American werewolf in London. There you go. It's the sound they play over the weird pig Nazi characters mm-hmm. in the nightmares. That's, ah, yeah, okay. It must be this part of some British stock yeah. sound library. I do like, I think that this, I was thinking very specifically about that sound when it happened because it is jarring. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think the edit works without that sound because. When they cut back to the bedroom. Yeah, because he he goes to hide, and there's nothing really left to hide from. Because the, the horse is already gone. The horse gone. is gone, so you need something there. So I think they it must have added it in the edit to make I wouldn't it make be surprised sense. if that was a post decision yeah, where yeah, they yeah. were like, wait, why is he so scared all of a sudden? Kevin is frightened by the sound and pulls the covers over his head, magically transporting himself back to his room. He crosses the room to a wall covered in drawings, one of which includes the knight on horseback in an identical forest. Dad seems to have heard the noise, too, and busts in, ordering Kevin back to bed. The next morning, Mom blends Kevin a strawberry drink in one of their five or six blenders, but suddenly they're talking about bedtime already, so I guess it's night? Even though the kitchen is filled with what looks like natural lighting, and Dad is sitting here reading the paper at the table. I, I think it is the morning. I, and I think he's asking to go to bed again because... At 8 a.m.? Yeah, because he mm-hmm. wants to go and figure out what happened to him. But then seconds later, it's dark again when he's telling them that his dinner went down. Way to subvert my expectations, Mr. Gilliam. <laughs> it's very clearly morning. <laughs> well, it, it's possible that this is early in the evening. And because, like, the previous the pre- the previous time we saw them all together downstairs, it was 9 o'clock at night. Right. So it's going to be dark. So it could be, like, summertime-ish, and it's, like, 6 o'clock. Maybe. And so the sun could still theoretically be up. And he's saying, I want to go to bed now. But you can't. You have to wait for your food to go down. Yeah. I don't know. It which, just looks Which is that code for poop? It, no, it's just <laughs> digestive. You can't go to bed until you poop, Richard. I, I, I get the impression thing. that he's like my kids and he just throws up in bed a lot. So they're like, <laughs> you have to digest some of it first and then you can go to sleep. An appliance that mom refers to as the carvery starts to malfunction in the background and oozes strawberry milkshake all over the counter. We hear the audience laughing to another episode of Your Money or Your Life, where a man has been strung up over a huge tank of custard, and his wife is being asked to name any actor whose name begins with a C. But he says the actor whose yeah. name yeah, begins with a C. It's like, is there only one actor whose name begins with a C? I, I think don't it's understand. supposed to mess with her. For Shut example, Cleese or Connery, the top two build actors in this film. Kevin pops in to tell his parents that he has digested his dinner and wishes to go to bed early, and they approve. On the way to bed, we see he is sneaking stuff under his shirt, like books, a flashlight, and a camera. 
He shines the flashlight on the wardrobe that the horse destroyed yesterday, but nothing happens. Just as Kevin starts to doze off, he hears a robot toy clicking around on the floor. He closes his eyes again, and the wardrobe shudders and creaks open, and out steps Randall, a dwarf in a pilot's cap with a monocle and a telescope. Or I thought it was a telescope. It's actually a map. I do like how this movie does, you know, the same sort of things that we do in Wizard of Oz or Labyrinth, for instance, that mm-hmm. all the all the elements that compose his room and his life contribute to everything that's right. about to happen. Yeah. Right. Right behind Randall is Strutter, a second dwarf with a big beard and a bowler cap, then Vermin with a goatee and a Civil War cap, then comes Fidget in a helmet that looks like an upside-down colander with a candle melted to the top of it. Then we see Wally in a big pirate hat, and finally Og in a Viking helmet with a single horn on one side. Author Robert Hewison suspected in a book about the Python troop that each of these bandits represents a member of the team. Fidget is Palin, the nice one. Randall, the self-appointed leader, is obviously Cleese. Strutter, the clever one, is Eric Idle. Og, the quiet one, is Graham Chapman. Wally, the noisy rebel, is Terry Jones. And Vermin, the nasty trash eater, is Terry Gilliam. (laughs) Kevin flips on his flashlight again, and Wally is spooked enough to fire an automatic weapon into the ceiling. These are the titular bandits, and they scatter, scouring Kevin's room for an exit. When they feel trapped in the flashlight beam, Randall tries to reason with Kevin. I can explain everything, sir. (laughs) It's not as bad as it looks. When Kevin asks who they are, they finally realize he's not the person they feared, and they move to attack the boy. Randall demands to know the way out and threatens Kevin with being eaten by fellow bandit Vermin. But Kevin doesn't know what he's talking about. After enough pressure, the wall behind Kevin collapses backward, and the bandits have found the way out. They keep pushing the wall in the same direction and carve an impossible corridor into the boy's wall. Suddenly, a giant silhouetted head appears in the room and chases Kevin toward the bandits down the long hallway until eventually they fall off a cliff into emptiness. So I love the effect of the head. Yeah. It's the way it's kind of like, not stop motion, but it's very... It's like a bunch of photographs taken in rapid yeah. succession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and the t- voice of Tony J is yeah. like just always unmistakable. And the he's just really laying it on too. Return what you have stolen from me. Return. Return the map. It will bring you great danger. Suddenly, a black square opens in the sky over an 18th century French farm, and the bandits and Kevin tumble out. Kevin doesn't understand where or when they have landed. Randall consults their map, and Kevin tries to make a run for it, while Vermin is trying to eat eggs that he found in the barn, or something. I don't know. He's got feathers all over his face. He He might have eaten a whole chicken. He's like a geek. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The bandits all chase Kevin into a field where he calls for help from three French soldiers on horseback. The riders shout at Kevin in French and wave their swords at him before riding off. Behind them, a long caravan of farmers follow and they invite Kevin to walk with them to Castiglione Lombardi, where Napoleon's forces are attacking. The bandits recollect Kevin and decide to take the river into town to find the next portal thereafter. This is the first set of the film that looks blatantly like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I feel like this film is like a camera test or like a dress rehearsal for The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. These sets here are incredible. And are they actual sets or are they real 
Castle Th- ruins. They're real repurposed cities. Right. Yeah, they, for the they, most they, part. They, I figured they had to be because I don't think he has budget to to make something look this good. But right. it just it looks incredible. It reminds me of what Tarsum Singh does, which is just yeah. find these epic locations to go shoot on. Exactly. I'm I'm more familiar with with the production of Baron, but uh, yeah, like they went to real like rubbled cities and, yeah. and redressed like the 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 theater in Baron was a real theater. Um, which apparently they had to cover with a big black tarp to keep the sun from coming in. Oh, really? And it got to be like 160 degrees in there all the time. Oh, my gosh. So I imagine you just found like old rubbled cities or stuff that looked old enough that you could kind of just dress it up a little bit with like some, yeah. some debris. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it looks great. I feel like everything in this movie is done again, but just a little bit more professionally in Baron Munchausen too. Mm. We enter a struggling theater and a courtyard with an audience of one, Napoleon Bonaparte, laughing hysterically at a Punch and Judy show. His officers ask for a moment of Napoleon's time so that he might accept the surrender of Castiglione, but he's enjoying the show too much to listen. We get the requisite gags about Napoleon's stature, 5'1 by the film's estimation, but in reality closer to 5'6, which is Ian Holmes' actual height. A shot rings out in the courtyard, and someone has shot the puppeteer doing the show, perhaps to get Napoleon's attention. <laughs> I, th- I think they're trying to imply that somebody, one of his own officers did this I because they they're are. like, yeah. Yeah. come on, accept the surrender so that we can stop killing these people. But we never see like someone put their gun away, and yeah. there's plenty of opportunity for that. I don't know why that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, they're publicly executing people nearby, Yeah, which, again, which raises some questions that I often have about this movie. Is like, is it a kid's movie? Yeah. Is this a fun family film or is this a film for adults? I think uh, it's both. I don't know. Jack watched the end with me. He loved it. <laughs> um, I really like this scene in the way that it was filmed. Yeah. Um, and I know you mentioned that they use a lot of low angles, but I think that they also just cast a lot of tall really people. tall people. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. So his officers are really tall, and all of the initial like actors on stage are really tall. Yeah. Some of them even come out on stilts and stuff. So I feel like... It just it just adds so much that they they have low angles and tall people. It, yeah. it feels and I and I think that he uses kind of a wide lens and it kind of distorts it in a way that for I, sure you know the way they kind of stretch across the the screen. I do think it was intentional that the first historical figure that we encounter be the shortest one, because all the other main characters have been so short the whole time. Well, one of the interesting things, I mean, aside from this Napoleon being obsessed with his height and preferring people around him to be short. Right. I don't think there's there's any there's no reason why the bandits had to be little people, which I think is kind of unique for the time. Right. Yeah, that that the fact that they're small is not relevant it's to not the relevant story. It's not relevant to the story in any mm-hmm. way. You know, like this moment right now with Napoleon is the only thing that that's sort of relevant. Yeah. And and, and just t- sort of tangentially, um so I just I just really appreciate the fact that this entire film is cast with people. Yeah. Uh, that it doesn't matter that they're little; they just happen to be little. And I guess when the actor who plays Randall, uh, David Rappaport, read the script, he wasn't aware that any of the other people would even be cast with little people actors. He thought he was just the leader of a group of bandits. Yeah. So he didn't know until he was on set that they were all little people. I actually love that concept too that the little person would be the leader of just yeah, any sure. any band of, of rogues. Mm-hmm. Napoleon laughs even harder at the dying puppeteer than he did at the show, and he applauds wildly. The theater owner calls out Zuzu and Benny, a pair of performers on stilts, 
and Napoleon vetoes the show right away. Next, he calls out the great Rombozo, the strongman, who is reminiscent of the Albrecht character from Baron Munchausen. Yeah. Again, the man is tall, and Napoleon gives a disapproving stare. The stage manager has one more act up his sleeve. This I think you like. He's very funny. There's three idiots uh, from Latvia. Very funny, I. They swallow brushes. <laughs> What a random fucking thing. No, no. There are freaks. Not one of them under five foot six. What kind of theater are you running, huh? I'm, I'm sorry, sir. Napoleon explains very clearly what he wants. That's what I like. Little things hitting each other. And right on cue, the bandits sneak behind the curtain. The theater manager is about to shoot himself when they take the stage. They give some sheet music to the orchestra and then do a very shaky performance of Me and My Shadow. <laughs> The song is not performed well, and the bandits are constantly swatting at each other and shouting over the music. The fight eventually overpowers the song and the curtains swing closed. The manager moves to hang himself from the curtain rope and Napoleon jumps through to compliment the show. The stage manager is so surprised that he liked it that he passes out anyway with the noose around his neck. Napoleon invites the bandits to be his new generals and we cut to them sharing a feast. Napoleon regales the bandits with stories of historical figures and the bandits all look bored waiting for the man to drink himself unconscious so they can rob him. They're not really stories of historical figures. It's, it's like, literally this just guy was heights. this tall. This guy was this tall. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got all the heights down down to like that to a, th- a quarter a of, an inch. of an inch. Yeah. yeah. Outside, Napoleon's former generals are all freezing in their long underwear since they've given up their uniforms to the bandits. Napoleon lists the heights of various short historical figures and then finally passes out. I'd like to know how he knows how tall Cyrano de Bergerac is. I don't think anybody knows how tall any of these people were. The bandits pull down the tapestry from the wall and use it as a sack to carry all of Napoleon's treasures with. A similar thing happens in Baron Munchausen when the Baron's strongman Albrecht is able to carry out all of the Grand Turk's treasure on his back when they Mm -hmm. leave the palace. The portal for the next jump opens up and the bandits escape through it with all of Napoleon's treasure before the former officers can catch up with them. We cut to the woods as a horse-drawn carriage races through the trees. Sir Vincent and Mistress Pansy are dressed in medieval garb and speak as if engaged to each other. Vincent is being played by Michael Palin, and Pansy is Shelley Duvall. They discuss their plans for the near future, and Pansy has questions about Vincent's issues. And the personal problem? Oh, much, much better. Uh, and now we will ride full tilt for Dover, and there embark for France. Oh, you don't have to wear the special. No, no, I don't have to wear the special anymore. Oh, pansy. No more worries now. They lean forward to kiss each other when suddenly all the bandits drop through the fabric roof of the carriage into Pansy's lap. The bandits jump out the back of the cart and the horses go wild and tip the carriage on a series of tree roots. Vincent and Pansy try to catch up with their ride on foot. Randall consults the time map to verify when they are, but Kevin can tell it's the Middle Ages from what they've seen so far. Exactly. Middle Ages. Hmm. In the Middle Ages. 
500 years before the man we just robbed is even born. <laughs> Fantastic! <laughs> Try that one in a court of law. Vermin, that is not meant to be eaten! Vermin keeps trying to eat anything he can get his hands on, and his friends have to keep slapping things out of his mouth. Kevin wants to officially join up with the bandits and asks how this map works in the first place. Randall explains that they sort of borrowed it from the Supreme Being. Sort of. You see, he used to be our employer. He made all the big stuff like good and evil, men and women, night and day, and we did trees and shrubs. We helped make all this. Phew, that's not bad. Yeah, but did we get a symbol full of credit for it? Beautiful. Oh. No. All we got was a sack, just for creating a pink bunker do. Yeah, beautiful tree that was. Og designed it, didn't you? Yeah. 600 feet high, bright red, and smelled terrible. It's <laughs> a pretty tall tree. Randall explains that because the universe came together in only seven days, there's lots of mistakes, so they were sent to Earth to correct them, and instead, they've stolen this map to go around robbing historical figures. This is the only map of all the holes. Well, why repair them? Why not use them to get stinking rich? Yeah! The bandits start chugging wine and then pose for a photograph from Kevin's Polaroid camera, holding up the map in front of them. Just around the corner, they hear Vincent and Pansy being tied to a tree by taller bandits. When Pansy hears the bandits coming, she assumes that they're here to rescue her, but they follow the taller bandits away. When Vincent realizes they won't be saved, his problem returns. The problem! The problem! Pansy, it started oh, no. again! Oh, don't worry, oh. darling! Oh. I say! I must have fruit! <laughs> Moments later, the bandits all simultaneously step into snare traps and are quickly dangling from a tree. The taller bandits release the shorter ones, and Randall demands to speak with their leader. We cut to an arm wrestling contest in a forest camp, and one man tears off the other man's arm and just throws it away. Not into a box full of arms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, why would another person sit down in this person's place after that? The leader is summoned, and when he comes out, it's John Cleese as Robin Hood, playing a sort of ceremonial leader. Apparently, he based this performance on the occurrence of members of the royal family being dragged out at sporting events to meet the players for no reason. So Robin Hood goes down the line shaking hands with each bandit and asking them to confirm their robber status. And you're a robber too, are you? How long have you been a robber? Four foot one. Good lord. Jolly good. Four foot one. Yes. Well, that, 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 that is, is a long time, isn't it? They show him the goods they stole from Napoleon, and Robin Hood is quite impressed. Robin Hood thanks them for their treasure, which he will now distribute amongst the poor, as is his way. His assistant, Marion, waves over the poor, and each of them is handed some random trinket, a golden goblet, a vase, a framed painting of Mona Lisa, and after each gift, another of Robin Hood's men punches each of the people in the face, even the old <laughs> ladies. <laughs> Is that uh, absolutely necessary? Yes. What did he say? He says, yeah, he's afraid it is. Uh, I also like the fact that Marion, in this historical context, <laughs> is, context a guy. is a guy. Yeah. <laughs> the bandits drag Kevin away, and when they pass Vincent and Pansy and the Rain later, they are down to their underwear as people take more and more of their belongings. The bandits seem lost in the rain, and some of them tell Randall that horse flesh wouldn't have gotten them lost like this, but he reminds them that horse flesh is dead. But I think we see Horse Flesh later, and he works for the evil genius character. In an early draft of the script, Horse Flesh was the seventh bandit, but Gilliam has joked that they didn't want to tempt Disney's lawyers with a lawsuit about seven dwarves in a movie. Yeah, fair enough. I don't know if that's real or if he just made that joke. Well, but, I mean, seven dwarves existed before Disney did anything with right. them, right? I don't know. Unless I we're talking say. about seven dwarfs. 
Uh, before Disney, only six dwarves had ever been born. <laughs> I just mean it's a fairy tale, right? I don't know. Or did they add the, did they add the dwarves to that one? Because I don't know. Is Snow White and the Seven Dwarves a famous fairy tale? Well, Snow White is. I don't know. That's what I, that's what I'm saying. Is I don't know if the original Snow White included dwarves or not. Is that one of those Hans Christian Andersen ones? Dwarfs. It's a 19th century You're German fairy divorce? tale. Dwarfs. The Brothers Grimm published Dwarfs. in 1812. That's when two horses separate into two halves of a horse. Well, I'm just saying that the, the Disney title is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, not Dwarves. Is it? Interesting. So were there dwarves in the original Yeah, story? it sounds like there is. It looks like there are. Okay. Just skimming the plot here, and it looks like that includes dwarves. Now we cut to the evil genius played by David Warner. But he refers to himself mostly as evil, and when we first see him, he's peering into a large cauldron, a la the Wicked Witch with her crystal ball. He watches the bandits move through time and addresses his henchmen. The back of his head has what looks like an H.R. Giger designed xenomorph ponytail coming out of a slimy human skull plate. So, these are the sort of people the supreme being allows to steal his map. One of the evil henchmen reminds him that the supreme being made him too, and the evil genius blows the man up with lightning hands. Never talk to me like that again. <laughs> Maybe that was horse flesh. So Maybe. he was alive, but well, now he's Horse flesh, and then he got zapped immediately. <laughs> evil lectures his surviving henchmen, and they applaud. He tells them he's all-powerful, and when a second henchman asks why he can't leave this fortress, evil blows the man up before answering his admittedly good question. <laughs> it's a good question. Evil explains that he is lying in wait to trick the supreme being because he knows he will win their contest with his knowledge of new technology. And when I have understanding of them, I shall have understanding of computers. And when I have understanding of computers, I shall be the supreme being. God isn't interested in technology. He knows nothing of the potential of the microchip or the silicon revolution. Look how he spends his time. 43 species of parrots. Nipples for men. Slugs. Slugs! He created slugs! There is an overwhelming, like, anti-technology sort of message to this, you know, with the parents obsessed with all the new yeah. fangled mm-hmm. gadgets and, and stuff like that, which I think is... I that know, fits Gilliam. It does. It feels about right. Yeah. Uh, I, also, all the objects and henchmen in the evil's lair are covered in plastic, much like the furniture and all the belongings right. at, at Kevin's house. Right. Also, like a lot of their outfits are very reminiscent to uh, some of the outfits in Twelve Monkeys. Yeah, that the or a couple the of the costumes wear. in the Apple. Evil says he wouldn't have wasted his time with all this natural stuff. He would have got cranking on lasers the first morning of history. One of Evil's henchmen notices through the crystal ball thing that the bandits have the map with them that Evil wants to take possession of. Somehow, Evil is able to reach through the mystical portal into Og's head and incepts him. Og presents a plan to the group in the evil one's voice. Uh, this is something I quote every now and then. I, I don't know, like, I can't think of the context, but sometimes I just go, stand by for mind control. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just the way he presents it to, yeah. to the, his henchmen. Og has an idea of the greatest treasure they could possibly go after, but Kevin warns them against always seeking treasure. He knows it will get them in trouble someday. The floating head of the supreme being from Kevin's bedroom appears again in the woods and chases the bandits into the next portal. Though this time, unfortunately, there are two, and Kevin has to choose one. Randall doesn't tell him which one is right, 
but waits until Kevin chooses poorly to tell him which one is wrong. We cut to the desert somewhere, as a warrior will come to know as Agamemnon in full Greek warrior uniform, battles a minotaur, or at least a human wearing a minotaur helmet. <laughs> I can't yeah. tell if this is supposed to be a minotaur or just a guy wearing a thing. No, it's definitely just him wearing it because he removes it later. You can remove a head. <laughs> yeah, but he slides it off. <laughs> yeah, they come off real easy after you're dead. <laughs> Trust me. It's also already rotting like on yeah. his face. Could be part of the cause of death. Maybe that's why it came off so easy. <laughs> nice, nicely aged beef. <laughs> the Minotaur knocks Agamemnon to the ground and steps on his sword to break it in half. Agamemnon tries to defend himself with a metal shield, but the Minotaur is too strong and folds it tight around Agamemnon's arm. The Minotaur reels back with a club for the killing blow on Agamemnon when Kevin falls from the sky, confusing the creature or person. Agamemnon is able to throw a small dagger into the Minotaur's belly and kill it, or him. <laughs> because this is not how the historical Agamemnon died, this is implied to be a closed-loop time travel movie, and Kevin must always have rescued Agamemnon in this way, unless the Minotaur would have lost the fight either way. IMDB says that this Minotaur helmet is the same one from 2000's Gladiator film, but there was no mention of Time Bandits in its recent prop store auction listing, so I would guess this is someone making up shit for shits and giggles. <laughs> yeah, w when was there a Minotaur helmet in Gladiator? As far There's as one that looks very similar, but it's not the same one. Mm. But it's also like 20 years later. 30 years later. Yeah, yeah there's no way that. Well, that wait, when did Gladiator come 2000. 2000. Okay. Have you seen what the gremlins look like now? I mean, there's no way that prop survived. <laughs> yeah. Especially not. It, no, no it's it's no it's more rotted away in the gladiator which i think is par partly why this person thought that's what it was but well i was gonna say i don't I, I also don't think that a uh a prop made on a terry gilliam budget made it 20 years right, yeah. <laughs> no i'm sure vermin ate it on set <laughs> he was a, he was actually like that <laughs> not really the warrior removes his helmet and as the script suggested quote reveals himself to be none other than Sean Connery or an actor of equal or cheaper stature. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they already knew at the beginning that they're like, let's put Sean Connery in the script, but there's no way it's going to be Sean Connery because right. we can't afford Sean Connery. As it happens, Connery agreed to appear for a reduced rate. He also did it as a little fuck you to his agent because he negotiated his pay directly with the filmmakers and cut his agent out of any percentage of the pay. <laughs> Uh, Gilliam has also admitted that Connery was a bigger name when they wrote the script than he was when they made the movie because he had a couple missteps in the late 70s. Zardoz. <laughs> to name one. Uh, producer Dennis O'Brien happened to be a golf partner of Connery, so it wasn't hard to bring him on board. And he does a good job. Like, yeah, he's great. Like, yeah, I, I think I don't think he phones it in or anything like that. I think, I think he was excited to be in a movie that was for kids because mm -hmm. he hadn't done that. It's also just not even that large of a role. Like, everybody who's in this, like, you know, John Cleese and everybody is just, you know, Shelley Duvall. It's a few minutes of screen time yeah. apiece. But they're all credited above all the bandits and a kid, which is weird. He asks Kevin his name and then gifts the boy his helmet from the battle. He wants Kevin to carry it for him back to town, but Kevin thinks he should wait here for the bandits so he doesn't get lost in time. Agamemnon asks where he's trying to get back to, and for the first time, Kevin realizes that maybe he's better here than home. He tosses the boy some water so he doesn't die out here, but as soon as he leaves, Kevin starts chasing after him, having changed his mind. No, no, please! I'd like to come! Really? 
In town, a large horn is sounded from a rooftop to mark the arrival of the warrior and child. Now, this rooftop, they had to get permission and it took like three months to get permission to go on this rooftop and blow a horn. Wow. Because this is a real town with mm. real buildings and this that was like a tower that was taller than all the other buildings. So, we're, I know we're kind of, because we're moving through the plot really quickly, but there's all kinds of fun banter and fun little weird jokes that are happening and what I love about this is, like, they're lifting up the horn, and there's just this guy who's just polishing it. And he's just, like, whistling a happy tune. Yeah. And he's just like, he's this like is oh, like, wait, I should be blowing into it. Well, he's just like, this is, this is just part of my day, and I enjoy my work. Yeah. Everyone cheers Agamemnon's entrance, except his wife, who seems shocked to see him alive. Later, we see Kevin admiring paintings of Agamemnon's past battles, while in the background, Agamemnon is ordering the execution of several prisoners and gives his men a command on the way out. Remind the queen that I still rule the city. Well, they're not just prisoners. Those are the, like the priests that were surrounding the queen. Yeah. And so it's like, it's like, yeah, he's, I'm back and now you guys are out. Yeah. Kevin asks Agamemnon to teach him sword fighting, but instead he teaches him magic. Kings aren't supposed to do things like that. This magic moment was actually a contribution of Connery's to the scene. He was like, I think I should do magic here. And Gilliam's like, great. Just imagine. <laughs> and he did the trick. He knew the trick and he did the trick. Later, Kevin takes a lot of photos just of random villagers on rooftops and stuff. Kid, you're traveling through time meeting great historical figures. Don't waste all of your pictures on these random nobodies. You could have taken this picture in the present. Take pictures of Agamemnon fighting a minotaur or <laughs> drunk Napoleon. Kevin confesses to Agamemnon that he'd rather stay here than return home, and the king says that they will make an official decision tomorrow. The next morning, Kevin is kidnapped from his bed by two masked men who carry him away. They put him on a horse and lead him to Agamemnon's throne room. He announces to the people gathered here that Kevin will become an official citizen of the city. Furthermore, he shall from this day forward be my own son and heir to the throne of Mycenae. He gets another annoyed glare from his wife. Historically, his actual wife, Clytemnestra, cheated on him while he was at war and then murdered him upon his return. Agamemnon orders the start of a huge banquet and a group of men carry in a roast carcass of what looks like maybe a bull. At first I thought this was the rest of the Minotaur. Oh, he uh, had a human body. I know. But, uh, but that's why bull's I don't head. still think so that. This, <laughs> okay. this, but this was the bull body that had a human head. Oh. <laughs> the bull body that's been fighting people wearing a decaying human head on top of its... <laughs> And he's full of fruit. <laughs> I need some fruit. <laughs> a swordsman slices the body in half and fruit tumble out from inside. Coconuts are collected from the piñata spillings and presented to the king and prince and then opened to release live doves that fly away. Is this, is this how beef wellington is made? That's right. I've, I've heard like it's really difficult to make. This is exactly how it's made. <laughs> now you know. It'll be very easy for you next time. <laughs> Just reverse engineer it from what you saw here. <laughs> Catch a bird in the coconut, <laughs> force feed it to a live bull, and then set the bull on fire. <laughs> I just want to set it up with a paper bag in my refrigerator that says, dead dove, do not eat. <laughs> I don't know what I expected. <laughs> Why is there a dead dove in the fridge? You didn't eat that dove, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Next, a group of six masked performers are invited into the space. They dance for a moment before revealing themselves as the bandits, and Kevin is immediately worried. They move around the room, collecting anything of value, including Agamemnon's crown and even Kevin himself. They pile their treasure in the center of the room, and Agamemnon is amused by Kevin's reluctance to participate. 
They raise a blanket in the air and then drop it in a puff of smoke, completely disappearing in the process. The crowd applauds for a bit until the realization sets in that the treasure is not coming back. I really love all of the costume designs in this movie. Mm -hmm. They're really great. I mean, everything from, you know, obviously the scene, it's mostly based on, you know, actual, you know, Greek outfits. Greek, Greek, you know, masks and stuff like that. Like the guys that kidnap him are wearing those amazing things. But I feel like these... um, outfits that the bandits are wearing here and they come in and do these dances and they're like stacked on top of each other when they're dancing and they have all the the grasses on them they look like those um those traditional african outfits for sure yeah doing Mm -hmm. those dances and it just looks so great and they even have the little like giraffe heads yeah coming out yeah and and i would argue that agamemnon's more upset that kevin is gone Sure, yeah. I, no. I, I think that's the thing that upsets him the most. Yeah, I'm just saying... Not, the, not the, that his treasure's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 but the the reason the rest of the room stops clapping is because they realize that the king has just been robbed in front of them and they're terrified. But I agree with you that he probably cares more about the kid than anything else that disappeared. Now we cut to the deck of a cruise ship somewhere in the neighborhood of, say, April 14th, 1912. Pretty late at night. Somehow, the characters of Vincent and Pansy have returned centuries later, though these might be descendants of the medieval couple, played again by Palin and Duvall. Vincent tries again to ask Pansy if they could enjoy a life together, despite some kind of growth on the tip of his nose, and she quickly accepts. Everyone has something odd about them. Yes. Why? I've got an enormous... Pansy! Pansy, I'm so glad you feel the way you do. (laughs) Once again, just as he works up the courage to pop the question, the bandits drop out of the sky and tear off Vincent's wig in the process. Unlike the nose, it seems she can't forgive Vincent's balding and screams before running away. They've ruined his life. In the very next shot, all the bandits are in tuxedos enjoying champagne and caviar. Kevin is bummed about being stolen from his new father, and the bandits try to convince him that Greece sucks. Stuck out in Greece. I was standard living in Europe. (laughs) (laughs) You make me sick. Randall comes closer and tells Kevin that he found the Time of Legends on the map, which includes an unspeakably valuable treasure in the fortress of ultimate darkness within. Uh, I love during this conversation that his cigar, like, gets into his hair. (laughs) It's like, was this scripted? As Randall fantasizes about the wonders in the Time of Legends, Kevin is choking on Randall's cigar smoke, and Randall accidentally ashes on the boy's head. And then just, like, nonchalantly, like rubs it out but there's still a bunch of ash in his hair that was clearly actually on fire (laughs) he orders champagne and when the waiter leaves to collect the drink we notice the lifesaver on the wall is for the ss titanic plenty of ice we see the titanic sinking into the ocean in one piece do you recall the last time that we talked about the titanic sinking in one piece raise the titanic that's right because the real sunken ship had not been discovered yet, and most experts agreed that reports of the ship breaking in two were from mistaken passengers who just heard loud explosions in the night. So the latest on all of that... I said it went down in one piece and then broke on the way down. Well, so the latest is that the scans don't really support the idea that the iceberg cut it on the side, which has been sort of the long-running understanding of, of of where the damage came from but it that punched it, down from the top somehow well no it was on the bottom that there was a bit of iceberg coming up and then scraped the bottom oh, open. okay so interesting yeah so, but it still sank right still sank okay all the bandits and kevin are able to share a single board to keep afloat as a reminder that rose dawson is a monster and a murderer evil starts speaking through og again now now's the time stop 
start our quest for the, for the most fabulous object, Randall. That's right. No! Kevin urges them against this plan, but what else are they supposed to do, Kevin? Drown? <laughs> yeah, you have to leave through a portal. You can't just stay here in the frozen Atlantic. The water spins around them, and we see the evil genius is controlling. Suddenly I feel very, very good. I'm sorry, boss. It'll pass, it'll pass. The bandits are formally invited into the time of legends, and now we get a montage of negative prints of bandits falling at odd angles into water. We'll see a very similar sequence in the adventures of Baron Munchausen when they're blown from the spout of a whale. Mm-hmm. The bandits spot a passing ship, and inside we see the clawed and blistered hand of an ogre. In the ship's galley, his wife is preparing breakfast. The ogre tries to stretch and complains of a bad back, and she gives him something to gargle, so he growls, scaring the bandits in the water into swimming away from the ship. The ogre throws a net overboard, but he's caught so much that he can't reel it in. Mrs. Ogre seems to pull the net up onto the dock effortlessly, and it's full of fish and bandits. Mrs. Ogre suggests a large meal to make use of their entire catch. She encourages the ogre to scare the bandits to death so they're easier to prepare. He begins tossing them one at a time into the cauldron, and each lift fucks up his back more. Does your back hurt? Huh? I, I know a cure for bad backs. Bad back? Me? An ogre? <laughs> what you need is, is stretching. Stretching? Then we hard cut to an overhead shot of the bandits pulling on all of the ogre's limbs to stretch his back out, and he's clearly loving it. Once he seems cured, the bandits give Winston the ogre the old heave-ho and toss him overboard, and he doesn't even seem upset about that. He's like, oh, the water's great. I love this. Mrs. Ogre comes out to check on him, and the bandits turn over the cauldron they've been dropped in and use it as a battering ram to knock her overboard into the water with Winston. The ogre coughs a mighty cough and sends his own ship sailing off without him. The ship rocks violently from side to side, and suddenly it's lifted up out of the water, and we reveal that the ship is capsized, by which I mean that it is now the size of a cap, sitting <laughs> on the head of a giant. The imagery of a giant wearing a ship hat was inspired by a painting of Brian Froud's that Gilliam had seen. That's the guy who did all the labyrinth art, I think, right? Yeah, he, he drew a lot of uh, goblins uh, yeah. that was used for labyrinths. The bandits move quickly below deck. On a nearby shore, we see a small home with a weird bipedal elephant creature family inside. It's a very interesting effect because it's we got the full-size actor in the background. Right. We got the miniature of the house, but then there's like but a- But that's the same scale as the full-size guy in the Right, background. right. But it's, a, but it's, but it, it's, not, to, it's not a full-size house to him. It's a, it's a miniature Right, yeah, house. it's a miniature, but, but he's stepping on a house that's actually that small. Yeah, uh, but inside the house is like a projection. And I'm not sure if it's being projected from inside or- if it's being done in post, mm -hmm. I, I think it's yeah. it's a production shot because it looks like it's not a great quality projection. Yeah. And it kind of folds when he steps on it, too. So I think it's being projected from in front, like they're literally shining this picture hmm. into the tiny house. It's disturbing, though, because there's a baby crying in the yeah. house. Well, it's annoying when babies cry. The same elephant creatures can be found a couple years later during the Meaning of Life's Find the Fish intermission sequence. Can you find the fish? <laughs> a fishy, a fishy, a fishy. Oh. And it went. Wherever I. Wherever I. <laughs> 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 I just wish that the, 
the whole movie was like that. No, that the podcast audience could see you guys both wiggle your arms <laughs> while he's doing those lines. <laughs> Zigzagging, trying carefully not to become a swastika. <laughs> the husband and wife in the home argue until the giant walks up on shore and crushes their house under his foot. The bandits are frantically tearing the boards out of the bottom of the ship to reveal a small patch of the giant's head. Kevin sees potions rolling around the ship and gets the idea to inject the giant's head with a whole bottle of sleeping potion. They fill a bellows with sleepy sauce and then stab it into the giant's brain to administer it directly. <laughs> Luckily for them, the behemoth doesn't just fall flat on his face, but takes a slow seat and removes his ship hat. The bandits climb out of the ship beside the sleeping giant. They walk for a long time through the gravel desert full of animal skeletons and eventually crash headlong into an invisible wall. Some kind of invisible barrier. Oh, so that's what an invisible barrier looks like. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. Amusingly, they run into it over and over again, pressing their faces against it to make plasticky squeaks and thumps. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he says that as he's pressing his face into it. What is it? I don't Consulting the map, Randall determines that this wall was constructed to hide the fortress of ultimate darkness and they have reached their destination. The bandits think he's insane until he picks up a sun-bleached human skull on the ground and hurls it through the barrier, which shatters into a million pieces and reveals the fortress beyond. It's so interesting, like, how there's so much repetition in Gilliam's imagery because this yeah. is also very much like Dr. Parnassus. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so so much of this also looks like Baron Munchausen and, and and all of that, but he just has these similar aesthetics that he carries throughout his yeah. films. Which is weird because I don't think there's as much of it in Brazil that that borrows from this imagery. Yeah, like most of the most of the really outrageous imagery in Brazil comes from the dream sequences. Right. Otherwise, it's just very like techno dystopia. Right. <laughs> more more anti technology mm-hmm. sentiment. But but I love this wide shot of the shattered, uh, the shattered barrier with the map painting behind. Yeah, it. with the yeah. map painting behind it. They begin climbing the formidable stairs to the fortress. In his quarters, the evil genius asks if everything's ready for the arrival of the bandits. Just inside the structure, the bandits find themselves in that same Moderna Designs kitchen prize from the start of the film. Jim Broadbent appears again as the host of Your Money or Your Life to present the bandits with their prize. And here they are, the winners of the most fabulous object in the world. The answer to all their problems and yours is here for them tonight. The path to the prize is presented as a labyrinthian path with a bottomless pit on either side of it, and the bandits race toward the finish line. Getting serious, like uh, Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom vibes from the top of this maze. (laughs) Yeah. That's true. I Feels like I'm going to have to tip the whole thing. Yeah. In terms of, like, epic sets again, I'm just like, you know. How do you do this? There's so many moments in this film where I'm like, oh, my God, these are great combinations of practical practical sets, probably a bunch of map paintings and, you know, miniatures. Yeah. Like, the miniature of the outside of the fortress fortress is so great. It's Mm -hmm. so highly detailed. It's so awesome. 
And you can see there's little tiny people crossing the bridge. I think they're like magnets or they're something. They're actually moving and yeah. they're physical pieces that are yeah. moving across the bridge. Like that wasn't animated or filmed or comped in or anything. They're yeah. just moving these little dots down there. Yeah, it looks to me like there's literally a magnet under the thing and they're pushing it along and dragging these magnets on top of the bridge. It's, I don't, it's, it's so cool. Everything about this. I love it. Behind Broadbent, Kevin's parents come down the steps in what looks like ice skater garb, like they're all dressed up real fancy. The bandits continue to greedily chase down the prize through what Kevin identifies loudly and repeatedly as an obvious trap. When the bandits finish the maze, the host asks them for the map, and they stupidly hand it over, when the man transforms on a flash of lightning into the evil genius. The bandits turn and run, and a cage drops from the ceiling to capture them all. There's a lot of this movie that reminds me of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, <laughs> but this part reminds me of like when they're telling themselves to hide trash cans in the gym. Yeah, but th- but this is also you know dangling from an ominous cave in a void black void yep. is also very very Munchausen. Yep. Yeah. When we see Warner walk away up the stairs, it's actually a double going up the stairs because he had terrible vertigo and wasn't willing to climb stairs that didn't have railings on either side because he was like, I'm just going to lose my balance and then tip and fall off. No, thank you. Kevin realizes they are doomed now and backs accidentally into a nine-foot-tall creature in a black cloak with a cow skull head. Sometime later, Vermin catches and eats a rat climbing on their cage, but this moment reminds me of Berthold Sally and the Baron Mm -hmm. and the Iron Cage on the Moon in the later film. Kevin flips through the Polaroids he's taken on this journey and finds the picture of the bandits holding the map. By pure serendipity, Kevin also brought along a magnifying glass with which to read the photograph. He shows the bandits the photo and they're able to locate a nearby hole. I also don't think that Polaroids are extremely high resolution no. pictures. No, no, So no. I don't think a magnifying glass would be any better than your eyes for this. But I like the, I like the concept that, yeah. that he had happened to take a photograph of the map. Yeah. He shows the bandits the photo and they're able to locate a nearby hole. We just found the biggest hole in the universe, and it's practically below our feet. Kevin, you're a genius! They use a knife to pick the lock on the hanging cage, and then Wally climbs out and cuts a strand off of the rope that they're dangling from. They keep taking more and more until they're suspended from one tiny strand. <laughs> it's like, we're out of rope. We'll just cut it from the top. <laughs> from the top? <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. They lower Strutter into the abyss on the rope and then swing him out towards the next hanging cage. Strutter gets a grip on a leg bone hanging out of the cage, but it snaps off in his hand. Eventually, their own strand is starting to break, and they finally get Strutter to swing completely across. Then, Strutter holds on tight and Wally swings out from the first cage with Strutter at the top of his line and swings across to a third cage. And then, Strutter swings the rest of the way onto a solid platform. So the line now runs from the first cage to freedom, and the rest of the bandits use it as a zip line to escape. Wally has to let go of the third cage and catch the line on his way down, and just as he does, the first cage finally falls and takes Wally down with it. The bandits reel in the rope as fast as they can, and Wally is saved. Randall makes plans to escape through the hole they found, but Kevin won't let them leave without the map, since the evil genius could take over the world with it. The evil one outlines his plan for a new reality with his henchmen. Henchman Benson adds a minor request onto the end of the plan. We can make beans into peas! <laughs> oh, Benson. Dear Benson, you are so mercifully free of the ravages of intelligence. In response, the evil one turns Benson into a dog and instructs him to guard this map. Just take it with you. Just take the map with you everywhere. It's very important. 
The bandits sneak into the evil one's lab, and Benson the dog notices and starts barking, but evil ignores it. Now, there's a lot of very strange audio effects and usages, like, because this isn't a normal dog bark. Right. But the it, dog looks like Einstein from Back the, to the Future, basically. Absolutely. It might even be the same dog. I don't know. Just flew it overseas. Probably not. They probably have dogs there. Yeah. <laughs> We've got dogs at home. <laughs> dogs at home. It's just like a shitty dog. <laughs> it's a cat. <laughs> it's a cat. Mom, this is a new dog. Let's go back to Vaughn's. Why do they have dogs at Vaughn's? What is Vaughn's? <laughs> yeah. For, for people who don't know, Vaughn's is what we call Safeway here. What is Safeway? They throw the dog the leg bone they collected to distract it and steal the map back. When they try to escape, Og hangs back too long and the evil one flips open his fingers as like weird little <laughs> guns that shoot out beams that transform him into a pig or halfway into a pig. So Og is now half hog. He's he's walking around on two legs with a pig top half, basically. So that's how that guy became a minotaur. Mm. That's it. That's what happened. So I I like the the things that he's trying to learn about from uh, from Robert, <laughs> his henchman, yeah. about reactors and is now tell me about subscriber trunk dialing. <laughs> <laughs> I think he means like like uh, telemarketer calls. Yeah, <laughs> which are again the ultimate evil. Yep. The evil one orders more cow-headed cloak guards to chase the bandits down. They squeal and neigh and burst up through the floor to block every escape of the bandits. Kevin agrees to stay behind with Og as a distraction, while the rest of the bandits use the map to get help. But I do like when they're like, Kevin, you like he'll stay here and he'll keep them distracted while we go get help from different time periods. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you should have one of us with you. How about Og? You take care of Og. And he's <laughs> like, oh, that's great. I'll stay with Og. Like, the kid's excited about it, but clearly Randall's like, I don't want to fucking bring this pig through time. Right. <laughs> um. It, this is also the point in the movie when um, reality starts kind of bending a little bit more. Yeah. In that uh, we start to see that the castle is actually assembled by giant Lego Legos, pieces, yeah. including it, it's really detailed because like the the classic arch piece is very visible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and how it's connected to other pieces. <laughs> when they're finally cornered, Kevin grabs a torch from a henchman and threatens to burn the map if the evil one doesn't call off the tall guards. The evil one blows up all his henchmen, including the dog. It's probably the most disturbing shot because I wouldn't put it past Gilliam to just blow up a dog for this <laughs> shot. Um, what's really amazing is he blows up the guys behind Kevin and there's no cut. Yeah. They, so it, Kevin must have held perfectly still. He, he must have held perfectly still or their costumes were like flash paper. Yeah, maybe. Because they go up and I, I, was, I, just, I kept going back and forth. Um it doesn't look like there's an effects cut. It just looks like those guys just burst into flames behind him. And disappear. Yeah. Og makes a run for it, and Evil turns Og the rest of the way into a pig. He takes the map from Kevin and charges up some kind of magical blast when a tank suddenly bursts through the wall. And then, do you guys recall the last time a tank suddenly bursts through the wall? <laughs> Harry's War? Oh, shit, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's right. Was that a tank or was that, that was the half track? Oh, that's right. Richard kept pointing out that it's not a tank. It's a half track. You're trying to refer to Gorp. Yeah, Gorp. There's probably another one in there, you know, like Dogs of War, the big red one. Yeah, sure there's tanks going through some walls. Yeah, Yeah, well, there's definitely tanks rolling over soldiers in the big red one. Yeah. Then a bunch of knights in full plate mail on horseback come through, and then a team of archers, a spaceship, a trio of gun-toting cowboys, and as you might have guessed, Agamemnon was meant to return to the story here, 
but Sean Connery was busy shooting Outland, though he suggested and made arrangements to come back for a later scene in the shooting schedule. So that was Connery's idea because he's like, yeah, we didn't finish my arc with this character, so I should come back at some point. Well, I think it adds a lot to it to bring him back later. Mm -hmm. The cowboys lasso up Evil, and then he spins in place, swinging the men all around to carnival music. Evil's head opens up, and a pole raises out of his skull and unfolds into a blade, which then cuts all of their lassos loose and throws the cowboys far out of sight in all directions. Yeah. Um, This is also kind of similar to me in Baron Munchausen when he's... uh, leading all the uh, Turks soldiers into a circle and it finally ends with him just spinning in place in, in the center of the circle of the troops yeah. and it yeah. plays merry-go-round yeah, carnival yeah. music as he's cutting off all their heads and <laughs> you see bodies are flying left yeah. and right from the spin. Jack loved this moment. He came in he came in <laughs> just just for this end bit like everything in the in the, the fortress here and, and he but was when he starts spinning the cowboys. He was cracking up as these guys flew across the room. Well when it first starts unfolding it reminded me a lot of when in Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice turns yes. into a carousel I was thinking mm-hmm. that exactly. Uh, his stuff thing. is like rising up out of his head. But uh, it also reminded me when he's actually doing the spinning of uh, the part in Baron Munchausen when Albrecht is swinging the three ships around. Right, right. Because there's this like false sense of momentum because of how the strings are all taut because mm-hmm. they're probably actually just a solid line running out to a prop. But it just looks so cool when they're all spinning like this. The archers fire a swarm of arrows at Evil, and he uses his cape to become a huge pincushion and catches them all harmlessly in his side. Then he inflates himself to fire the arrows back at the attackers and kills every archer. (laughs) All of the archers die. Next, the knights are up, and Evil dons a gas mask and kills them all with a chemical cloud. Or I I at least thought they were just getting poisoned, but then when the cloud clears, they've all been impaled on weapons. Yeah, they've all impaled each other in an impossible, like, configuration. (laughs) Yeah. Randall fires the tank at Evil, and Evil just deflects the shell. He does the same thing with laser beams from Wally's spaceship. Evil takes over the tank and spaceship to fire them on his own and knocks down a giant stone column which lands directly on Fidget, crushing him flat. This death was meant for Agamemnon, but was repurposed when Connery was not available for the scene. Uh, It's a really good use of editing and good filming because they have this insert shot of the column coming and pressing against Kenny Baker's face. Yeah. It, it only exists for like barely a second. Yeah. Um, but it's just enough that when you're cutting it from it falling to that scene of it pressing against his face to the, just the flattening. Being flat. Yeah. It really like, looks like it hit him. Yeah. And I'm sure that the way they would get that shot of it hitting his face so fast is by playing it in reverse. So they had him press his face against the column and then, Pull, pull mm. away very quickly. I actually think it's more impactful to have Fidget be the one that dies here than to because have Fidget Eggman. is the super friendly one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. and and he's been with us the whole time. Right. Whereas Eggman's like you know just in this sliver of the story. Yeah, I, I assume that it would have been a situation where it was going to fall on Kevin and, and he saved him. pushed him out of the way. Yeah, uh, uh, but also I love. <laughs> Wally's just despair and reaction right, yeah. and they're all trying to hold him back because yeah. just, he'll just get killed yeah Wally kind of flips out and tries to charge evil but they basically have to tackle him to the ground because they're like this guy way overpowers you you can't do this or we're going to lose you too out of nowhere evil turns into a charcoal statue and explodes and then the godhead appears again the bandits are re-terrified until the supreme being takes a human form I hate having to appear like that really is the most tiresomely 
noisy manifestation. Right away, he fixes Og and then orders the bandits to clean up the place. Wally is still mourning beside Fidget's corpse when his friends ask him to help clean. But, but he's dead, Randall. Fidget's dead. Dead? No excuse for laying off work. The Supreme Being resurrects the bandit. I didn't realize until he apologizes for killing Fidget that Wally took it the hardest because he felt responsible because it was his spaceship that knocked over the pillar mm -hmm. in the first place. I thought it would be funny too if the Supreme Being killed Fidget after they finished cleaning. <laughs> like that's the, <laughs> the only reason he resurrected him. When they apologize for stealing the map, the Supreme Being reminds them that he doesn't do anything by accident and that he gave them the map specifically to test this new creation of evil. The Supreme Being holds up some... Now, is, what is this? Is clothes? He holds up some clothes and says, whose are these? Yeah, it's like Kevin's coat. Is it the clothes that he came into the world with? Uh, into this weird time traveling world with? I, it might have been his suit jacket from the ship. Okay. I just, I didn't, I didn't understand this moment because suddenly he's saying, who's, whose are these? And then Kevin walks up and he says, oh, those are mine. And he makes him sign for them. And it's like, just seemed like a weird moment to include when it doesn't doesn't add anything well I, I i don't feel like he's signing for the clothes i think he's just signing for his participation in this enterprise but he doesn't make anybody else sign anything well I guess they, they were already employees, employees. Yeah. Were, they, were they fired he's 1099ing kevin oh, okay, basically that's happening. <laughs> well i feel like, like i think i've done enough hours i was here for centuries today in in that everything sort of maps back to real life and his room and his experiences. I mean, it's just I feel like it's almost akin to being like your room's messy. Like yeah, here's yeah. your clothes back off the floor. The bandits are instructed to dispose of every piece of the charred corpse of evil. Kevin doesn't understand. He wants to know why the supreme being would let people die or even cause them to die in the first place. You might as well say, why do we have to have evil? Oh, we wouldn't dream of asking a question like that, sir. Yes. Why do we have to have evil? Ah. I think it's something to do with free will. Oh. His explanation is interrupted with the loud crumbling of more waste being disposed of. It's a great parody of how this scene goes every time, because it's in literally every divine confrontation moment. Someone asks why evil exists, and God says less blatantly than this that it has something to do with free will or something about how good can't exist without evil, but Gilliam's just cutting to the chase and admitting it's a dumb trope here. Now, now this 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 line is particularly important to me because I've pondered it for many, many years. Yeah. When Kevin asks, why does there have to be evil? And he thinks, he steps away and ducks behind a column and then comes back and then says it has something to do with free will. And I've always wondered why he considers the question, walks away, out of the, he walks completely out of frame, yeah. and then walks back in and then says the line about free will. I always wonder what that was meant to be. I assumed that it was that originally he wasn't even going to register the question that he that his intention was not to and then he was like you know what this isn't one of the bandits this is a kid mm -hmm. i'll tell him why sort of <laughs> sort of but the point is supposed to be like there's there's no real excuse so yeah. i just have to say that it has something to do with free will because that's the excuse that god gives yeah. in movies uh the the thing that they have to put the evil remnants in is like a post office box. Yeah, but there's like a, such a narrow slot, and they have big chunks. Yeah, <laughs> like they have to mash them down yeah. without touching them because they have evil's head, his entire head. Yeah, it's like you can't get that into that. <laughs> the supreme being warns the bandits that if any scrap of evil is left over, it could be very dangerous. It could turn them all into hermit crabs. 
Randall negotiates on behalf of his friends to get their jobs back, working for the Supreme Being, and they're offered their positions with a 19% pay cut backdated to the beginning of time. With the mess mostly tidied, the bandits leave with the Supreme Being and go back to creating, and Kevin is sent back to his own time against his will. He's transported by a swirl of smoke and awakens in his room, still surrounded by smoke as if the house were on fire. Uh, so he asks to come with them, and Fidget even speaks on his behalf. Like, yeah. It's like, can't Kevin come with us? And, and the Supreme Being says he has to stay here to carry on the fight. Um, it's a, a lot. A lot of this movie weighs on me, and I because I, th- I, ever since I was a kid, I've watched this movie a dozen times more or more. Um, and this this whole last interaction with the Supreme Being has always been the thing I think about the most. Yeah. Um, in that, uh, like like I said, going behind that column, I still don't, I still wonder about that. Um, but the line of he has to stay here to carry on the fight. Um, I always wonder what that means because where is he? He's in this time of legends. Is he? Is he be- going to be sent back home? Yeah. No, I, th- well, I think I th- he's talking about the present day. Yeah. And, and the fight that he's talking about is, you know, evil techno- the- technology mm. versus horse. E- e- <laughs> you know, like. Well, I think it's evil that remains within the world. That, right. That he yeah. must go back to the world and, and continue to fight evil. Yeah. And I think by evil, he, he means like avoiding this whole like materialism trap that so much of society is a part of now and being a kid who cares about ancient warfare and stuff like that carrying on the traditions of the past instead of getting sucked into these traps of today the trap trappings of trapitude outside his home kevin can hear fire trucks arriving at his address just like the day he was adopted by agamemnon the boy is taken from his bed by two men in masks firemen this time but the blocking is all done with the same framing and everything so it's reminiscent yeah. of that moment so great it's such it's such thoughtful filmmaking yeah to to link all these things together i love that and we get a quick shot of the floor in which we see all the stuff set up on the chessboard including the the tilted chessboard wall which is what the in the in the final battle with evil there's a checkerboard wall that's yeah. at a weird angle and we can see this this whole thing whole thing's been set up on the floor right and and then that that makes me wonder about like Kevin being the supreme being, like n- beyond like like was this any of this real kind of thing, but like did he somehow put things into motion? Uh, yeah, I, I I think there's a lot of things that to, to well, dissect around this, but and even if any of it happened whatsoever, I mean it's right. it's similar to what you you think about with. Return to Oz. The, well, The Wizard of Oz, Return to Oz, mm. um, Labyrinth. You know, like, did any of those things actually happen to any of those people? Or yeah. were they just parts of their imagination where they're processing the difficulties that they're having in their lives right now? Because, you know, Kevin is... Uh, Neglected. Yeah. And, 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 and I think he's fighting his parents' addiction to technology and materialism. And, and this is him processing that and being wanted and cared for and yeah. all of that uh along i think he's with... dropping into rem sleep very quickly <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. he closes his eyes for yeah. like four seconds yeah he and, should not be driving <laughs> and all of his toys and his pictures you know compose everything we see in all of these moments in, yeah. in, in the film that makes sense uh this time the people who take him from his room don't put him on a horse they just take him outside where we find his parents arguing over which appliances to save from the fire with no consideration for the son they left in the house. One of the firefighters asks Kevin if he's okay, and we see it's Sean Connery again, a reincarnation of Agamemnon, perhaps, 
on loan from the set of Outland for only half a day, and he was back on set that night at Pinewood Studios. And, and once again, he is Kevin's savior. Right. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't his own father that came and saved him from the fire. Yeah. It was. It was Sean Connery. I think they could have carried that metaphor further too, and I'll mention that in a second. Uh, Kevin thinks that the experience might possibly have been a dream until he finds the stack of Polaroids in his pocket, which confirms his adventures. Another firefighter leaves the house carrying the smoldering microwave, and Kevin recognizes a chunk of evil's ashes inside. Mom! Dad! It's evil! Don't touch it! And that might be the last clip from our opening montage that we've covered this season. As a reminder, the clips will change each season, so we'll get a whole new set of movie quotes starting in December or January, whenever we kick off 1982. The Agamemnon firefighter winks at the boy and then drives the fire truck away, leaving him alone at a burnt-down house with no parents to look after him, or not look after him, as the case may be. I might have liked it if he'd tossed the boy some water to drink. (laughs) Yeah. As he was leaving. And then the kid started running after the fire truck when he realized there was no one here mm. for him. Um, This is another thing. This, this last shot of him walking towards the house, I think it's reversed. It is. Okay. Yeah. Um. So the camera is backing back up into the sky, but the smoke is going yeah. downward toward the house. Uh, because they whatever process they used to zoom into the house at the beginning of the movie, they're reversing here. Um, as he just sort of wanders the rubble of his home looking for his parents. Mom? Dad? The camera backs up into the sky, and we zoom far enough back out to see the map of the universe again, until a pair of older hands roll up the map and carry it out of frame and credits roll under the George Harrison song that Gilliam hated for the movie. Producer O'Brien was dead set against ending the film with blowing up Kevin's parents because he thought it was way too dark, but after several test screenings, it was clearly the favorite part of every child involved yeah, in the process. You can't not do that. Yeah. And also, it's not like it like leaves you in that moment for very long. It's just like, I, I listened to a bunch of podcast reviews of this movie before we got started, and so many of them start with, I did not remember that this happened, because it happens and then the movie's over so quickly mm-hmm. yeah. that you don't even really have time to register it. I mean, I... I remember. It's the yeah, quote I, I remember. I remember. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the quote I always like jump to when I think of this movie. It, yeah, it's by far it's by far the 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 most quotable part of this movie. Unless it's what is it? Prepare for mind control. <laughs> Stand by for mind control. <laughs> no, but actually, you know, this is one that I use regularly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't um, touch it. And that is Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits wonderful just wonderful i like it a lot it has pacing issues wrong no that what i said is right (laughs) but i mean there's just stuff that sometimes runs a little bit longer and maybe it's a european sensibility yeah that some of these scenes are are given a little more room to breathe a little more room to breathe than i would be comfortable with if if i were editing it um and i do feel like compared to a lot of his other work before and after it looks a little bit uh, less professionally produced. I think that this movie is perfect. I it's, would. It's pretty great. I, I would change nothing about it. I think that there are very few movies where I'm like, it's just fine. It's absolutely perfect the way it is. Don't I wish touch it. that Terry Gilliam had remade it in like 1991 when he just had a little bit better grasp on making these things look perfect and he could use the same people. I, 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 I don't know. I think that the, the, the raw grittiness of it is sure. compelling and... 
I think that I, I probably just like that European sensibility, as sure. you put it, no, a little bit more than you do. I think you do. I think that's definitely that. That's uh, your, more to your taste than it is. Yeah, mine. it's just it's just it's great. Like I, I think that the have you have aesthetic... you seen all three of the Dreamer films? Have yeah. you seen Brazil? Oh yeah. Okay. How do you rank the Dreamer films? Uh, Baron Munchausen's number one. I put this one as two, and third is Brazil. Um, I know Richard, you're a big fan of Brazil. I don't mean to. No, below yeah, this one. No, no, no. How do you do it? Um, I would probably. My two cents, two senses here is that my 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 film 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 major would say Brazil Baron Time Bandits, but my love of Baron is yeah. so high. Like yeah. it, it's the I, I've watched Brazil a lot and I've watched Time Bandits a lot, but Baron Baron I have watched probably every year. Since I became aware of its existence, it is also a perfect movie. So yeah. the fact that he has at least two perfect movies, yeah. But I, I don't think he could have made Baron if he hadn't made Time Bandits first. Oh yeah, I yeah. think he learned so many lessons on Time Bandits that it made Baron possible. And I would love to see what Time Bandits would have looked like if it were the third film. You is mean, what I mean? Right. I guess. I mean, I could see there is an opportunity to make a more refined version of this, but I don't think that it needs it. I know. I, I know that, that, that it's fine the way it is. I just would have liked to have seen Terry Gilliam at his most Terry Gilliam, which is what I consider Baron Munchausen to be, at like yeah. the height of his perfectionist Terry Gilliamism. Right, and where he still had people supporting him to get it done. Because right. I think that he's also making great movies after this, but he loses a lot of that support along the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He doesn't have the same kind of, you know, funds and, you know, just... And part of it's because disposal. of his personality, and yeah. part of it is because of his his inability to compromise with people. Yeah. Where people are saying, I, you know what, you can have 99% of what you want, but this 1% thing we want to change. And he's like, all right, then I'm going to the next financer. Thank you so much for your time. Well, well, I feel like his later movies have a less hopeful tone. And I feel like, not that Time Bandits has a hopeful tone, but but Baron uh, and even Brazil to an extent uh, have a weird darkly hopeful yeah. versus like you know, Fisher King, Fear and Loathing. Oh, Tideland. Uh, yeah, oh, Tideland. Um, I, I mean, I still love all of these yeah. movies, just to be clear. Yeah, and, tw- and twelve and twelve monkeys. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, they're all they're all very similar in construction. Sure, and they're all, but th- but they don't have the big crazy v- uh, visual s- effects right. shots. Like, you know, when I think of 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 Time Bandits, I I think of all like the crazy visual effects shots that that, that he does, and, and Baron especially like. My favorite of is the the transition from the water to the moon scape. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Like like that's some just amazing effects. But and it's not that his movies don't have amazing production value. Right. Like, like uh, especially Twelve Monkeys. But well, I feel like Twelve Monkeys is in that category with Fear and Loathing, where they're based more in a real world. Right. Right. Than the other yeah. movies are. Well, I think so I think he gets back to this feel and the aesthetic and and in. Uh, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Absolutely. But he didn't have the budget. But the reason why is because it's the same co-writer, Charles McCune, who did Brazil and yeah. Baron Munchausen, came back for Imaginarium. Mm. And there's so much Imaginarium that comes from Baron Munchausen specifically. I mean, it's about a traveling theater, and it's like a family theater with a father and a daughter. And it's like there's so much of it that's just like whole cloth from this other movie. Yeah. 
Um, and I love it every time because it's such a fun aesthetic. His like turn of the century, you know, the rolling waves that you yeah. turn yeah. On, and all that stuff. It's, it's just really great. I love all of it. Um, obviously, thumbs up, I think, for all yes. three of us. Yeah, thumbs, thumbs up. up. Like, time Bandits and Baron uh, are seared into me. Yeah. Uh, from childhood. Like, I mean, I, I don't know when I would have seen Time Bandits for the first time, but I was very young and Baron came out when I was eight. Um, and uh, my favorite story about, I know I'm talking about Baron so much, but uh, because Baron turned me on to Gilliam as a name yeah. that I could look back to and find other things that he had done. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so like discovering that Time Bandits and Baron were the same director. Right. Like yeah. was, was just this mind blowing thing for me. It's like, oh, of course. Why wouldn't they be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think when people ask me what my favorite movie is or what my favorite 80s movie is that I tend to say Big Trouble in Little China lately. But I was realizing today that there's a decent chance that it's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yeah. Because the all the performances are so great and every single shot is just like this gorgeous, insane work of mm-hmm. art. Yes. I, that I can't believe that this film even came together. Like yeah. that it exists. And and you would watch it now and you would think, how did they do this without computers? I don't understand how they yeah. do this stuff. Like every time Berthold starts running and his feet are just chewing into the ground and it's just like, how is any of this practical? How did you do this, Terry? I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think, I think if you would ask me who, which director, who's your favorite director? I'd probably pick Terry Gilliam because I can't think of a director who I love all of their movies. Yeah. I, I can't think of what, I, like, I feel like he's just, he, he did it right every time. I haven't seen Tideland. It's dark. It's yeah. very dark. Yeah. And, and Zero Theorem is a little bit to messy. Be, I haven't seen that. Actually, movie. I haven't seen Zero Theorem, to be fair. So. That takes place <laughs> in, like, a futuristic yeah. setting, right? Yeah. But more of a, more of a, like, a clean future, not like yeah, a Yeah, it looks like a future. mid-journey future. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, thumbs um, up. What are we thinking letterboxed for this one? I, it's probably not a surprise. I have it at number one. Really? Nice. Okay. Yes. Richard, where do you well, have hold this? Hold on. I want to know what number two is or what, what got knocked out. I'm sh- assuming oh. Muppet Caper? No, that's number three. It oh, okay. was uh, the Indiana Jones. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I still have Indiana Jones as number one. Um, I, 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 I would say, again, compare, weighing the what is what have I watched more. Sure, sure. Uh, I for sure watched Raiders of the Lost Ark more. Uh, but Time Bandits is my number two, uh, which puts it between Indiana Jones and Excalibur at number three. Oh, okay. I have it in 22. Ooh. I love it. Divorce. I love it. <laughs> I just also love everything above it. Okay. Yeah, so what, what, what was better than Time Bandits? Right above it is The Great Muppet Caper, and right below it is The Howling. Hmm. And above that, it was History of the World Part One, and then above Whoa. it was... No. Dead, and, dead and buried. Th- this movie is History what? of the World no. Part 1. <laughs> yeah, but History of the World Part 1 got there first. You have Dead and Buried at, in the top 20? I really like that movie. Okay. The writer-director here was Terry Gilliam, as we've mentioned a couple times, I think. Uh, he was the American Python, uh, but he also has lived in the UK for <laughs> longer than I've been alive. So mm-hmm. uh, he's not, I, I wouldn't say he's... Uh, the american member anymore i'd say he's just another one of the guys in the uk he's the writer director of many of their films uh, i think he co-directed the python films with terry jones usually yeah that, terry jones usually gets yeah. the director credit um he did uh, holy grail he did meaning of life 
Uh, he also directed many unrelated films that make use of regular Python stable of comedians like Jabberwocky, which is in particular mistaken for uh, an official Python film. Time Bandits is the first film in Gilliam's Dreamer trilogy, followed by Brazil and Baron Munchausen. And he also directed The Fisher King, Twelve Monkeys, Fear and Loathing, The Brothers Grimm, and most recently, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote after several attempts. Right. The co-writer Michael Palin played Vincent. He is another Pythoner known for his appearances in all the regular Python stuff, Flying Circus, Holy Grail, Life of Brian, Meaning of Life. But he's also made appearances in Jabberwocky, A Fish Called Wanda, The Witches, and Fierce Creatures. He's also famous for a diary that he has kept since before Monty Python's Flying Circus even took off, which is available in print, and I have it, and I've read it, and I love it. He's like the most normal, like, down-to-earth, chill guy. <laughs> the music here came from Mike Moran, not much else I recognized. The cinematographer here was... Peter Bijou, who also lit Bugsy Malone, Life of Brian, Nine and a Half Weeks, Mississippi Burning, The Road to Wellville, and The Truman Show, among many others. The editor here was Julian Doyle, who also cut Life of Brian, The Meaning of Life, and Brazil. John Cleese played Robin Hood. He's probably the biggest name of the Pythons. He shot his part in two days. Cleese had previously played a sort of incompetent anti-Robin Hood character called Dennis Moore, on Monty Python's Flying Circus, who starts by stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, but he's so successful at it that he is soon stealing from the poor and giving to the rich because the poor and the rich have traded places. Dennis Moore, Dennis Moore, riding through the land. Dennis Moore, Dennis Moore, without a merry band. He steals from the poor and gives to the rich. Stupid bitch. <laughs> he sang, he steals from the poor and gives to the rich. Wait a tick. Blimey, this redistribution of wealth is trickier than I thought. He was also Basil Fawlty on Fawlty Towers. We've seen him already in The Great Muppet Caper, and later he shows up in Yellowbeard, Silverado, A Fish Called Wanda, Five O Goes West. He took over for Q as R in the Bond franchise. He's in Rat Race. He's nearly headless Nick in the Harry Potter films. He also voices the King in two DreamWorks franchises where the protagonist lives in the middle of nowhere by himself until a pop-singing secondary lead brings a lot of people to his home and then leads him to a nearby castle to protect their friends, by which I mean trolls and Shrek. And I think Faulty Towers is actually getting a reboot soon, or there's been some talk of it uh, coming back with John Cleese. I think him and his daughter were working on it somehow. Sean Connery played King Agamemnon slash Fireman. He was James Bond. We saw him earlier this season in Outland, which shot simultaneously with this. He's also in Darby O'Gill, but he is not Darby O'Gill. No, he's not. Uh, he's, uh, he's in Marnie, Zardoz, Meteor, Highland. Highland? Highland. Highlander. <laughs> Highland. <laughs> Outland, Highland, you know. Outland, Highland. all the lands. <laughs> all the lands. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Dragonheart, which is also getting a remake soon. Have you heard about this? No. Liam Neeson as the voice of the dragon. Okay. And uh, Eggs from uh, The Kingsman. Liam uh, Neeson's? Egg Egerton uh, as uh, as the guy pretending to hunt the dragon. Right, right. Um, And it's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rogue One directing. Oh, okay. What's his name? Gareth Edwards. Gareth Edwards. There you go directing uh he's also uh connery is also in the rock and finally league of extraordinary gentlemen which he chose over playing gandalf in lord of the rings <sighs> but i love league of extraordinary gentlemen so yeah. good choice and probably better for lord of the rings too. yeah i think so too shelly duvall played dame pansy and pansy 
which may or may not be the same character. We've seen her so far as Wendy Torrance in The Shining and Olive Oil in Popeye and Millie Lamoureux in Three Women. She also works with Altman on Brewster McCloud, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Nashville, Buffalo Bill and the Indians, or Sitting Bull's History Lesson. She's in Annie Hall, Frank and Weenie. She has her first film in a long time coming out this year called The Forest Hills, which has a crazy cast list, actually. It's got Eddie Furlong, Dee Wallace, Felissa Rose, Stacey Nelkin, and Mark Summers. What? Wow. <laughs> Very strange uh, Do you strange remember collection. these people? Yeah. I hope somebody gets slimed. What's it called? It's called The Forest Hills. The Forest Hills. I, I had heard she's making a horror film um, that someone had reached out to her. She's doing better than that shitty Dr. Phil interview that came yeah, out. Yeah, that, uh, that was very upsetting. Yeah. Um, and she'll be playing a character in an upcoming horror film, so that's exciting. Catherine Hellmond played Mrs. Ogre. The part was considered for Gilda Radner and offered to Ruth Gordon, but Gordon was unfortunately injured on the set of Any Which Way You Can and had to drop out of the part. The studio was not keen on casting the relative unknown, but Gilliam insisted on Catherine Hellmond, and the script called for a couple of ogres, but it was decided during production that it might be funnier if the ogre was just married to a completely normal woman. Yeah. <laughs> who has the strength to pull all these. Yeah. <laughs> Which I love. Yeah, that she <laughs> just so pulls great. the net and yanks yeah. seven children-sized people out of the ocean. But, she just likes ogre-y things. Yeah. yeah. Like she's, feet and hands hanging from the walls <laughs> and she's yeah. grinding them into meat. Yeah, she's like, I just like eating people too. It's, it's why like, not. Miss 45 moment. At the time, she was Jessica Tate in 88 episodes of Soap, but she's likely best known for the role of Mona Robinson in 196 episodes of Who's the Boss? She also voices a car named Lizzie in all the Pixar Cars films. Ian Holm played Napoleon. He's played Puck in multiple recorded versions of A Midsummer Night's Dream. He's in Juggernaut. He's Ash and Alien. We saw him last as Sam Musabini in Chariots of Fire. This was Holmes' second of three times playing Napoleon after Napoleon and Love in 74, and The Emperor's New Clothes in 2001. He was also supposedly on the short list, as it were, <laughs> to play the part in Kubrick's famously aborted Napoleon story, but the only names I could find attached in the lead there were David Hemmings and Jack Nicholson, so that might just be wishful thinking on another yeah. IMDb trivia. Or Emperor's New Clothes is a charming little movie. Is it? Yeah. Uh, he's in Soderbergh's Kafka, Naked Lunch, the Fifth Element, A Life Less Ordinary, but he's probably best known for his appearance as Bilbo Baggins in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Uh, jump scare that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> when his face just suddenly turns into a demon face when he tries to get the ring back. It's pretty terrifying. This was his second movie to feature the Titanic so prominently after the TV movie SOS Titanic. Ralph Richardson played the supreme being. He was Gilliam's first pick, but producer O'Brien pitched Art Carney, Burt Reynolds and Peter Sellers for the part because obviously he's looking for big big names. Right, right. Ralph Richardson was a friend and regular co-star of Fellow Knights, Sir Lawrence Olivier and Sir John Gilgood. He was Alexander and Dr. Zhivago, Mr. Benton in Who Slew Auntie Rue, The Crypt Keeper in The 72 Tales from the Crypt, Sir James Burgess in Oh Lucky Man, and a librarian in Rollerball. We saw him last as the wizard Ulrich in Dragon Slayer, and this was actually his third time playing God after 1947's Every man and successfully cloning humans in the 60s. No, he only played God twice. <laughs> because of his experience in the character, he would occasionally inform Gilliam, God would not say that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Peter Vaughn played Winston the Ogre. He was Tom Hedden in Straw Dogs. We saw him last as Mr. Freeman in The French Lieutenant's Woman. He reunites with Gilliam in the second Dreamer film Brazil, but nowadays he's probably best known for the part of Master Eamon on Game of Thrones. David Warner played Evil Genius. The part was first offered to Jonathan Price, who turned it down for a larger paycheck on something called Loophole, which we won't get to till 86. I don't know why it came out so late in the U.S., but right. uh, it came out in 81 overseas. That's a loophole. Um, but the trailer looks really freaking cool, and it has a lot of good people in it, so I'm interested in seeing it. Uh, I, I could I could see him playing this role. Yeah, that, I, I, think, I think David I t- Warner and him were probably up for a lot of stuff together. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, though I, I do love David Warner's performance yes. here. Yeah. It's so good. When Price was cast as the lead in Gilliam's next film, Brazil, he claimed that Gilliam was always stringing him up on wires or strapping him into chairs and calling it his punishment for passing on time bandits. <laughs> David Warner played Lysander in A Midsummer Night's Dream. We saw him last as the Reverend in The Ballad of Cable Hogue. He's Harry Niles in Straw Dogs. He's Jennings in The Omen. Dr. Stevenson, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper in Time After Time. He was also John David Now in The Island and Murphy in French Lieutenant's Woman. He's back right around the corner as a very similar character in Tron next season. Yeah. He plays multiple characters in Tron. Right. And later, he's in Star Trek's 5 and 6. He's Professor Perry in TMNT 2, Secret of the Ooze. He's Jor-El on Lois and Clark. Dr. Wren in In the Mouth of Madness. The Lobe on Freakazoid. Yeah. Spicer Lovejoy in Titanic. And we just lost him about a year ago. Yeah. Uh, he also shows up with Sir Ian Holm in that SOS Titanic movie, too. He's also... Uh, because he does so much voice work as right. he did so much voice work as well. Um, just just a really prolific character actor yeah. who I adore. I think he did a voice in uh, like a two episode arc of Gargoyles also. Oh, well, he was in several Gargoyles. He was yeah. the Archmage. Right. David Rappaport played Randall. This was his second film with Sean Connery after 1979's Cuba. He played a troll on Amazing Stories. He voiced the AI character Mal, M-A-L, on Captain Planet, but was replaced after his death by Tim Curry. He was cast in the role... Death by Tim Curry? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I want that. I want that. Someone put some Tim in his curry (laughs) and choked on it. I want death by Tim Curry. Death by Tim Curry. (laughs) (laughs) It's like your version of Snoo Snoo. (laughs) (laughs) He was cast in the role of Kivas Fajo, on Star Trek The Next Generation, but over a weekend between shoot days, attempted to take his own life and was subsequently recast in the role with Saul Rubinick. Footage of Rappaport in the role is easy enough to find on YouTube, though, to compare their performances. Oh, man, that would have been great. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, so- Saul Rubinick as that character is very sinister and awful, but seeing Michael Rapp- uh, David Rappaport... Oh, say Michael Rappaport. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, David Rappaport. <laughs> Um, uh, that would have been a very interesting thing. You can find it online. Like almost every line was recorded with both characters. We detected no malfunctions before the explosion. Everything seemed to be running as smoothly as the other flights. Were you able to save the pilot? We detected no malfunction before the explosion. Everything seemed to be proceeding as smoothly as the other flights. Were you able to save your pilot? Yeah. He, he, for people who don't know, he's, he's a, he's an obsessive collector of unique things and uh he wants data to be part of his collection right from from the takes i saw though i i think that um part of the reason that they might have recast the role is also that rapaport seems to be having trouble with the lines with remembering them or with delivering them as if 
he's experiencing the situation. Um, sadly, Rappaport made another successful attempt on his life five days before the episode aired. Kenny Baker played Fidget. He was famously R2-D2. We saw him last year in Empire and as a dwarf in both Elephant Man and Flash Gordon. Outside of reappearances as R2, he was also in Amadeus, Labyrinth, and Willow. Malcolm Dixon played Strutter. He's an Oompa Loompa. He was in Flash Gordon, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Willow. Mike Edmonds played Og. He was in Flash Gordon, Clash of the Titans, Dark Crystal. He's Logray in Return of the Jedi. He's Stretch in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And he's a Gringotts Goblin in the Harry Potter films. I think he's uh, one of the patrons at the, the Red Car Cafe. Oh, okay. That's like sitting at the bar? Yeah. Jack Purvis played Wally. He was Chief Jawa in Episode Four: A New Hope. And Chief Ugnot in Episode Five: Empire Strikes Back. He's in Dark Crystal. He's Tebow in Return of the Jedi. Dr. Chapman in Brazil. He's in Labyrinth, Willow. He's Jeremy and Gustavus in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Tiny Ross played Vermin. He was in Flash Gordon before this. Not much else after. Craig Warnock played Kevin. Craig was hired for this film after his brother came in to audition for the part. And Gilliam found Craig to be less cute and more introspective. I thought he was great. Yeah. And I don't know why this kid didn't get more work. because I think it was by choice. Okay, because he seems really natural. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and very believable and not annoying. Yep. Yeah, which is super hard. The novelization reveals that Kevin's full name is Kevin Lotterby, and he's 11 years old. Uh, this actor also showed up in a TV movie called The Lighthouse in 83, and that was it. Those are his only two things. David Dacre played Kevin's father. Not much else I recognized. Sheila Farron played Kevin's mother. Again, not much else I recognized, and this was her last film, but she's pretty young, so they must just all have been you know, non-actors who decided not to continue. Uh, Jim Broadbent played Compeer. That's the name of the host of the show. Uh, we've seen him so far in Breaking Glass and The Dogs of War, and he's back later for Brazil, Superman 4, Bullets Over Broadway, Bridget Jones' Diary, Moulin Rouge, Gangs of New York, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, and he's Professor Slughorn in the Harry Potter films. Uh, was Breaking Glass a minisode, or did I completely wipe that from that my memory as well? That was a minisode. You are correct. <laughs> What's fun is uh, Jim Broadbent and Jack Purvis play competing plastic surgeons in Brazil. No, oh, that's awesome. Uh, they both have like very different techniques, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that was, that was like a fun pairing of them again. Yeah, Myrtle Devonish played Beryl. That's the woman whose husband is being suspended over uh, a giant vat of custard at the beginning. She returns to play generic old lady characters in Brazil and Meaning of Life. Terrence Baylor played Lucian. He was a commercial presenter in Brazil. He's Gregory in Life of Brian and the Bloody Baron in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which is one of nearly headless Nick's ghost friends. Charles McEwen played the theater manager, and I think he plays the theater manager in Baron Munchausen also. No, he's one He's one of the actors. Oh, is he one of the actors? Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, he's the one playing the Baron in the original play before they trade places? No, no, no. He, no? he he's, he's one of the actors. He's playing um, uh, Adolphus. Oh, okay. Uh, he shows up in Life of Brian, Brazil, Spies Like Us, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, and The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, and he wrote the screenplays for Brazil, Munchausen, and Parnassus. The, he's in the famous scene in, in Spies Like Us of Doctor, 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 Doctor. <laughs> I because Terry Gilliam is also one of the doctors. <laughs> right, of course. Derek O'Connor played Robber Leader. He appears in Jabberwocky. He's Ralph. Ralph? Yeah. He's Ralph in Hawk the Slayer, Dowser in Brazil, Peter Vorstead in Lethal Weapon 2, and more recently, Very Old Man in Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. 
Neil McCarthy played second robber. We've seen him now as Watson in Monster Club and Calabos in Clash of the Titans. Peter Johnfeld played arm wrestler. He was Inspector Marvin in A Fish Called Wanda. Derek Deadman played Robert. He was Bulldog, one of the henchmen in The Apple, and he later appears in Never Say Never Again, Brazil, Morons from Outer Space, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and he's a bartender at the Leaky Cauldron in Sorcerer's Stone. Roger Frost played Cartwright. This was his first credit. He's a bookseller in The Emperor's New Clothes, the third film that starred Ian Holm as Napoleon. Martin Carroll played Baxi Brasilia III. He was the second warder in The Creeping Flesh, which we got a Patreon review of earlier this year. Marcus Powell played Horseflesh. Yeah, one one of the henchmen is a little person. So that must be Horseflesh yeah. who went to work for the evil one. Right. He was also an Oompa Loompa. He was Rykar Rijard in A New Hope and The Holiday Special. He plays Midget in Elephant Man and A Little German in Top Secret. <laughs> okay, there you go. Uh, I'm sorry, I really don't know any German. That's all right, I know a little German. He's sitting over there. Winston Dennis played Bullheaded Warrior. He was also Samurai Warrior in Brazil and Bill and Albrecht in Baron Munchausen. So that's the, strong, the strong man. He's is, Bill. <laughs> the strong man is the one wearing the Minotaur head. Yeah. Or the, oh, okay, that's interesting, because um, you don't see his face at all. Right. And then he plays such a major character in the next film. Well, I mean, in Brazil, uh, he's also completely covered. You don't see him at all. Oh, interesting. Oh, uh, for the samurai suit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The giant thing that's taller than him. Ian Muir played the giant. He was a professional wrestler before this. Doesn't have many credits. Andrew McLaughlin played another fireman. He was Groom and Wycliffe in Meaning of Life and a couple characters from Life of Brian and the Colonel in Baron Munchausen. Tony Jay is the voice of the Supreme Being. He plays Werner in Twins. He voices Shere Khan on Tailspin. He's Monsieur Dark in Beauty and the Beast, uh, the animated Beauty and the Beast, the Disney one. He's the, the head of the asylum. Right. Uh, he plays Ink Monsters in Cool World. He's Anubis on Gargoyles. He voiced Alex Winter on the TMNT cartoon. Wait. It's like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. I was like, a did, was there like Alex a Winter? crossover with the Bill and Ted cartoon? But it says he played Alex Winter, not Bill just, S. Preston. So it just coincidentally, there's a Someone character named Alex named Winter. Alex yeah. Winter. Okay. Uh, he also voiced Chairface Chippendale from That's The Tick. Right. He was Megabyte on Reboot. He narrates Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shanked Me, and he was Professor Uglestein on Recess. I, I would think that he's probably most known for Frollo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, okay, yes, yeah. Edwin Finn was the Supreme Being's face when they're doing all those quick shots of it. Um, he played another popper in the workhouse in Oliver. Ray Cooper is the hands of the Supreme Being that fold the map at the end of the movie. He was the preacher in Popeye last season. He's a technician in Brazil and a functionary in Baron Munchausen. So he shows up in all three, but it's just his hands in this one. Yeah, uh, yeah. in, in Brazil, he's only in the opening. Uh, he's the one who smacks the bug on the ceiling that falls into the computer that ends up messing up the names. Right. But in Baron, he's the the, perp, uh, the assistant to Jonathan Price, who's always just kind of whispering into his ear. Yeah. Um. Uh, never has. I don't think he. I don't think he speaks a line. <laughs> he just leans in. Yeah. And whispers. I think that's everything for Time Bandits. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at Linktree slash Vintage Video Pod. What's that sound? That's right, it's a new patron, Lyle Scott. As a patron of the show, Lyle now has access to 41 70s reviews and 40 minisodes. Thanks, Lyle, for supporting the show. 
Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, which IMDb describes like so. D.B. Cooper parachutes with his stolen money and proceeds to contact his wife. Meanwhile, his former army sergeant, who now works as an insurance investigator, manages to identify him and decides to track him down. We leave you now with the trailer for The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. In 1971, a man called D.B. Cooper got on a plane and got off a little early with $200,000 of the airline's money. I like living easy, I like being free. Living free and easy brings out the best in me. Makes me shine, 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 makes me shine. When he touched ground, the legend began. With a little luck and a greenback dollar, you won't see me shine. And the chase was on. Who the hell are you? I'm Bill Gruen, General Demony Insurance, and we're on the hook for that 200 grand. This is the second day of the mysterious and dramatic disappearance of a man using the alias D.B. Cooper. There are 3,000 armed men scouring that forest now, so careful, D.B. D.B., it's me, I'm back! Are you trying to tell me the only reason you did this thing is for me? Only you, and the money. I know who Cooper is. Hey! Where are you going with that airplane? I got a few ideas about where he may be going. I got a piece of information that's gonna make somebody a very big hero. Grab some sky there, toots. First that turns him in is gonna be a national hero. Person turns him in ought to be shot. Yep, cash and carry. You're still an outlaw. And I'm a very successful outlaw. That way. Right on. Them guys, man. They're gone. To some, he was an outlaw. To others, he was a hero. But to all of us, he's the one that got away. It was great, Dad. It was great. The pursuit of D.B. Cooper. Who says you can't take it with you? With a little luck, the green back collar, you won't see me shine. 